James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you don't commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can't wait to take the time to break this all down. And Lord willing, we'll get all the way to verse 13 tonight. But as we unpack these verses, it's going to help us to remember what James had just finished saying where we left off last week. Go to the last of, uh, chapter 1 again and look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Remember, when James wrote this, he didn't say, okay, that's the end of chapter 1, now I'm going to start chapter 2. It's a letter that he's writing. So the last thought of chapter 1 is actually flowing into chapter 2. What James has just said is that religion that's undefiled or pure is to look after those who are considered less in the world. Widows, orphans are those that the world considers less. But then he goes on to show that the problem is manifesting itself this problem we have of not treating those who are considered less in the right way is manifesting itself in other ways as well, and that is subtle or not so subtle favoritism. And that's what we're going to talk about for a little bit tonight as we break this down. The Bible actually says that to show partiality or favoritism is to show that we're not letting Christ live his life through us because God shows no partiality. Now, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I'm going to bomb you with the words word for it. All right. So get ready. Go to Job 34. Go to Job 34. And by the way, to be kind to you, I'm not giving you all of them. But I will give you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight places that it talks about this. I want you to see this so that the word of God can take root in our heart. And we won't allow the word of Jim to stick in our heart, but the word of God. Go to Job 34. Look at verses 10 through 19. Remember, Elihu is speaking here. And he's the one that's been speaking for God. And he says, Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. 
Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man? Who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. So here, Elihu is saying, God doesn't show partiality. And you, you got to understand, the mighty one judges justly. And he doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't see some people as better than others. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as, are, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Keep reading. He says he ex executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So again, here God's described as the one who has no partiality. And he says to the nation of Israel, you were sojourners. Don't ever lose sight of that fact. And when you see a sojourner, treat them well. Of course, as you know, the Jews, not understanding that God loved everybody, thought that by him choosing to work through them, that they loved, he loved them more than everybody else. And we have a tendency sometimes to kind of fall into that mindset a little bit as Christians as well. We know we're forgiven. We know we're children of God. And it's subtle, but there's this attitude that sometimes when we see the wickedness of mankind, to think to ourselves, well, God likes us better. And you've got to understand that he loves everyone just as the same amount. Now, we might get to experience the fullness of God's love because we've been reconciled. But don't think for a second that God loves you more than somebody else. Go to Proverbs 28 and look at verse 21. Proverbs 28, verse 21. To show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. That tells you how easily bribed we are, aren't it? isn't it? Matthew 22. Go to Matthew 22, verses 8 through 10. Matthew 22, starting in verse 8. Then he, Jesus, said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding, the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, look closely, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. He sent them out to go gather everybody, the good and the bad. 
God's salvation is available to everyone. You don't have to be good in order to get it. You can't be too bad to not get it. And it's interesting. He sent them out to go invite the good and the bad. Go to Acts chapter 10. As you do a little study, you'll realize that early church didn't fully grasp this yet. And yes, God had revealed himself mainly and first and foremost to the nation of Israel. But as we've already seen in our study of Romans, when it says to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, it just simply means they had more light revealed, but each one will be held accountable for how much light they had revealed. But it wasn't that he liked the Jews more than everybody else. But if you study, you'll notice that Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he keeps preaching, men of Israel, men of Israel, men of Israel. Yet he doesn't understand that as they are full of the Spirit, they're preaching and everybody's hearing them in Gentile languages. Here are these Jewish guys preaching in Gentile languages and they still don't get it. And so in Acts chapter 10, God has a sheep come down and he tells Peter with the unclean animals that aren't what I call clean, don't call unclean. You know, and then, of course, there's a knock on the door and the Gentiles ask him to come. So in chapter 10, look at verses 34 and 35. This is after Cornelius and his family come to faith. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, prior to that, he comes into the house and says, You guys know that it's unlawful for us Jews to associate or even have anything to do with a, a non-Jew. Yet Jesus himself, when the nation of Israel would not go through Samaria, went through Samaria, met the woman at the well, went out of his way to go see the one that the world considers less. Remember how he got in the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis to meet with the demoniac. And if you read the Bible story, he literally gets in the boat, meets with the demoniac, heals him, and then gets back in the boat and leaves. He went all the way across that lake for one person. Of course, he had others in mind that the demoniac was going to be used to preach to as well. But Paul, Peter, even at this point, the same Peter that preached at Pentecost, it says, now I know that God doesn't show partiality. Go to Romans chapter 2. Look at verses 6 through 11. God's, God's word says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For God shows no partiality. By the way, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, right? We know that from the scriptures. Does that mean that if just because they're a Jew, they're going to be saved? No, they're going to have to turn to him in faith just like everybody else. When it talks about the Jew first and also the Greek, let me remind you, it's just simply saying he revealed to them more. They had the covenants, the law, the spirit of God and his glory with them. And they'll be held in higher accountability, and they have been throughout history because all that they've had revealed to them. But don't think for a second because God reveals more to some people than others that he likes some people more than others. Those of us who have had more revealed are going to be judged even more. <laughs> Do you understand? And so there's no favoritism with God. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into that trap as well. And as we've already seen, we might even do wrong for a piece of bread. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9.
It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Oh, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Do you think that there's a pattern here that we're starting to see throughout Scripture that God has to keep reminding us he has no favoritism, there is no partiality? Let's go one more. First Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed with the, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Oh, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Again, God says, I'm holy, you be holy. I'm impartial, you be impartial. Now, let's go a little bit deeper. We know that that's what the scripture says. And I could have shown you more, but I hope to get the idea. God shows no favoritism. He doesn't have favorites. Now, let me tell you, he does have intimates. And those are the ones who allow him to be involved in their lives more. But he has no favorites. He loves the lost person in hell just as much as he loves the saved person. He loves them the same. Like I touched on earlier, those of us who have been born again and reconciled to God get to experience the fullness of that love. Those who are outside of God's uh, uh, salvation don't get to experience the fullness of that love, but he loves them just as much. But why do we then, there's lots of reasons, but I'm going to hit on one here from this passage here. Why do we then, have a tendency to kind of have favoritism, to look down on some and to avoid certain people and to like being around certain people more than others. And we have a tendency, and there's lots of levels to it, but one of the reasons that the Bible hints at and talks about is because we tend to view people as to whether or not they're of any value to us, whether or not I can get anything from them. I mean, the only reason I'm friends with Charlie is because he's got master's tickets. <laughs> Go to Luke. Go to Luke chapter 14. You know that's not true, Charlie, but it was a great illustration. That part is true. You do have tickets. That's true. Luke 14. Look at verses 12 through 14. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. 
Jesus also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, he's not saying never invite your family or friends or anything like that. But what he's saying is, don't invite only the people that can pay, repay you. Invite people that could not repay you. Now, years ago, when my wife and I were newlyweds and we were in seminary at New Orleans, we, would, we lived on the campus at New Orleans Seminary, and we lived in the very back corner of the campus. It's an 85-acre campus, and we lived in the very back corner in the trailer park. And we lived in a trailer that was 12 feet wide, 62 feet long, and right next to our trailer was the rest of the trailer park on one side. And on the other side was uh, the, the multi-family uh, housing called the zoo. It was called the zoo because every family that had more than three kids who were in seminary had to all stay in that one building. So it was the zoo, okay? And the kids of the zoo played all over our trailer. And many of the time while they were going to get a drink of water, they would turn the water off to our trailer and we'd be in the shower and we'd yell through the thin walls, hey, that blue one, turn it back on, you know, kind of a deal. But every time when we would drive into the campus, there were two main entrances. We would always go in the one to the right most of the time because you pulled into the gate through the gates of the campus. Just as you come through the big gates to the right hand side was this huge brick building. It was a house where the president and his wife lived. And I used to always joke with Becky and say, we need to pull in one day, knock on the door, and invite the president, Dr. Level, and his wife to our trailer for hot dogs. Because one day he'll invite us there for steak. And I would say it a lot. Let's go invite them to our trailer for hot dogs so they can invite us for steak. I didn't really care about the president that much. I cared more about his stake and what he could give me. And we have a tendency to be that way with all of them. And as a pastor, I had to be real careful as well when a wealthy family would show up. It's easy to get excited or versus a family that might be hitting the benevolence needs quite a few times. We, we have a tendency to show favoritism and it's tied to what he's just said. He goes, you want real religion? You want pure religion? Show concern for people that the world considers less. And let the Holy Spirit show you how that's to play out in each of our lives. Because we could turn this into a law, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. In verses 5 through 7, though, James continues his teaching on this by reminding them that, as we've already seen in our study on James, that God has blessed the poor with true riches. Go back to James chapter 1 and look again at verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 through 11, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Jump over to chapter 2. Look at verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Go to Revelation chapter 2. We've already touched on this. I just want to hit it a little bit more. We've already touched on this when we were in chapter 1, about the fact that those who are poor have it easier to have faith 
than those who are rich. Revelation chapter 2, look at verses 8 through 11. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He was an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. But look at what he says to him. I know your poverty, but you're rich. Why? Because they had a bank account for eternity that was going to dwarf a lot of the people in the earth who had a bigger bank account in this life. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and look at verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul's using the Macedonian church in their poverty to illustrate their faith when he's talking to the Corinthian church about giving to the poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you, you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, are we talking about riches in this life, or are we talking riches in eternity? Eternity. Hopefully you understand that because in 1 Timothy 6, there's actually a warning that there are going to be preachers that come into this world and teach that godliness is a means to financial gain. You can go double check me later on. 1 Timothy 6, it says, beware of those who teach that godliness is a means to financial gain. Remember we looked at last week, uh, a couple weeks ago when it talked about the rich and the poor, how we are to seek God and his blessing. Yet if we seek to become rich, we're in trouble. Go ahead, Rick. 1 Timothy chapter 6, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, verse 5 and following talks about that. And it talks about how, but godliness with contentment is great gain, because we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. But there are preachers that are going to teach that if you live for God, you can be wealthy in this life. Are there not those who are teaching it? That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about poverty and riches, especially when it talks about the fact here, don't look down on the poor man He's actually got more going for him than the rich man because he is rich in faith. But he also reminded them that the rich people in the world were the ones who were persecuting the church. Go back again. Look at verses eight and following. Sorry, verse six and following. He said, but you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blasphemed the honorable name by which you were called? I wrote down in my notes, why do you want to fill your pews with quote-unquote members who trust more in their money than God? By the way, we still do. We still do. Oh, but you know why? Because we see them as someone that could help our cause. They could give a big check. Folks, without realizing it, or maybe we already realize it, and that's a good thing, we all have to fight this. It manifests itself in many different ways, and one of them is partiality. And again, anybody says, I don't have that problem. I see it. Is everybody the same? Well, good for you, but you've got a problem with lying. <laughs> I have to, every time I see someone on the side of the road, pray. 
because my first instinct is to think they're scamming. I also know many a story about those who are, because they're making good money to do that. I also know other situations where there are actually uh, organizations that send people out, and they, those people get a percentage of all that they gather. There's all these things, but you know what? All of a sudden, I be, can become jaded, and all of a sudden no longer see that person as someone whom Jesus died for. We have to be careful. You want true religion? Show love toward those that the world considers less. Now look at verses 8 through 12. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For the, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, we're going to take some time tonight, and we're going to break down these three different phrases. If you notice, in this section, he talks about the law, the royal law, and the law of liberty. Did you catch that? There's the royal law, the law of God, and the law of liberty. What is the difference between the royal law, the law of God, and the law of liberty? Well, we're going to break that down. The royal law could also be translated God's sovereign law. But if you look in the context here, it shows us what the royal law is. The royal law is another way of speaking about the law of God, but summing it up into two main things as Jesus did. You see here, he says, if you fulfill the, the royal law according to the scripture, shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Go back with me to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Leviticus 19 and then verse 18. In Leviticus 19, 18, it says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look at verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, you already know this, but I'm going to take you there. Go to Matthew 22. Jesus used these two passages that I just took you to to sum up the whole law of God. Go to Matthew 22 Verses 34 through 40. 34 through 40. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. It says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This right here is the royal law. It's the law of God summed up into these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, if you keep those two, you'll keep all the rest of the law of God. You'll honor God, and you'll treat the people around you the way you're supposed to. You'll keep the law of God. If you keep the royal law, well, go to Romans chapter 13. If you might not have remembered from our study of Romans, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul actually talks about this a little bit. 
Romans chapter 13, verse 8 says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, you shall not covet. And then the other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing good. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then he says, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Because if you know, or maybe you don't, or let me remind you for those that did, the law demanded perfection. The Bible says, cursed is the one who is not able to keep the whole law. So even if you kept all of it except one point, in the eyes of God, you broke the law of God because it had to be kept perfectly. Well, Jim, nobody can keep it perfectly. Good. Excellent. Because no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 tells us that rather through the law we become conscious of sin. The law of God was sent to show us our sinfulness. The royal law of God was sent to show us our sinfulness. If you think back to when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. The guy says, I have since my youth. Well, Jesus says, okay, you sound pretty impressive. I've summed up the whole law into two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're able to keep the whole law, these two things will be simple. Why don't you sell everything you have, give to the poor. That's taking care of me. And sorry, sell everything you have to the poor. That's your neighbor. And come follow me. That's the other one. Love the Lord your God. And the guy went away sad because he had great wealth. All Jesus did was repackage the law and give him the royal law. He wasn't able to keep that. So what's the law of liberty then? The royal law is summing up the law of God into two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We know what the law of God is. It's God's written law and God's law that none of us can keep. But then he goes on and he says this in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Well, you might not remember this, but the law of liberty has already been mentioned in our study of the book of James. We didn't dive into it, though, because we're coming back to it now. Go back to James chapter 1. Look at verse 25. And it says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So in the section that we looked at where it says, don't just hear the word, but do what it says. He then says, the one who perseveres, looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he's going to be blessed in what he's doing. Back to chapter 2 and verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of Liberty. So what is this law of liberty? Well, guess what? It's the same thing. It's the law of God summed up in a different way. As the royal law was the law of God summed up in the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself summing up the whole law. The law of liberty is actually another way of describing keeping the law of God, but this time we're keeping it in the new way. Not in the old way of a written code. Thank God we're not under that because we can't keep it perfectly. 
but we do it in the new way through the Spirit of God. As I put in my notes, the law of liberty is just another way of describing how to keep the law of God. This way, though, is done by God through us and not by us in our own strength. It's God living his law in obedience to the law through him. Remember, we've already seen before in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, Paul says, walk in the spirit and you what? You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. As we focus on walking in the spirit, we actually have the freedom where we're not under the legal law in the sense of we have to keep the rules perfectly. We've already realized we can't do that. We've been set free from that. But that doesn't mean that we don't keep the law of God now. But we now focus on walking with the Lord in the freedom of following Jesus. And as we do that, we will keep the law. Didn't he say that? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the law? Well, the law of liberty is simply saying this. If you let Jesus live his life through you, you'll keep the law. Well, let me let the scripture lay it out for us. Go to Romans 7. Look at verses 1 through 6. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, since we've died to the law, we're no longer under the law's demands of perfection. Thank God for that. But don't think for a second that now we're free to do whatever we want and that there is no law of God. No, no, no. The Bible tells us over and over, and you're going to see it in a little bit. Don't use this freedom, this liberty, to indulge your flesh. We now have been set free from what was holding us captive, and we've been set free to follow Jesus. And just like he said, if you love me and love your neighbor, you'll keep the law. He's saying to you, if you let me live my life through you, you'll keep the law. We try to stop sinning. Jesus says, focus on walking with me. You've got to put your focus in the right direction, in the right place. You, many of us have tried to stop sinning by saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, where's your focus? It's on this, you and on sin. Instead of putting your eyes on Jesus. We'll go to Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 14. He's just said that as much as uh, sin reigned in death, grace also reigned in life through Jesus. Now he says, what shall we say then? Romans 6 verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Don't miss that word, might. You're going to choose whether or not you're going to walk in the newness of life that you have. For if we have been united with him 
in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, because we're in Christ, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've been set free. Free to do whatever we want? No. Free to follow Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your body parts to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members or body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you're not under law, but you're under grace. So here we see, we've been set free from the law in the sense of its demands of perfection, through faith in Jesus, we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. The life we live, we now live by what? By faith in Him who lived for us and died for us and now lives within us. So we now serve the law of God, but we do it in the law of liberty. If we walk with Jesus and the freedom we've been given, we will keep the law. You will. You don't have to work on keeping the law. You work on walking with Jesus. And that's where we've gotten it backwards for so many years. Go to Romans 8. Look at verses 1 through 4. Man, I think we should do a study of Book of Romans sometime soon. Go to Romans chapter 8. For those of you that are new online, we just finished Romans, by the way. Go to Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you see it? We've been set free from it, but now we're able to live it out as he lives it through us. Now go to verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the sons of, or the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 6, and then verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6, and then 17 and 18. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, he goes on and says, down in verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom, there's liberty. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Folks, if you are in Christ, you've been set free of the legal demands of the law. You will not be judged on whether or not you kept the law. Praise God, we've been set free from that bondage. Because all the law did was fuel our desire to break it. But once we realized we couldn't keep it, it drove us to a point of saying, I'm in trouble then. Because the Bible clearly says those who live righteously will be given eternal life. Didn't we just read that earlier in Romans? Well, how are we going to live righteously? Jesus himself just told us in 1 Peter, be holy because I'm holy. God, I can't. I'm a mess. He says, good, that's why I sent my own son in human flesh. He lived without sin. He was punished in your place. He rose from the dead and now will give eternal life to all who believe in him. And you are now, if you put your faith in Christ, set free from its legal demands of the law. And now you've been given freedom to choose whether or not you're going to walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. You won't lose your salvation if you're born again, if you walk in the flesh, but you're going to miss out on a whole lot of stuff. You're actually going to suffer uh, a lot of consequences and scars of disobedience. But you've been given the freedom now to live in the law of liberty. In the freedom that we've been given to walk with Jesus. And so, as Paul said, I say walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Stop trying to stop sinning. And learn how to walk with Jesus. And you'll look back and go, you know what, I'm not sinning as much as I used to. Oh, but don't get proud. Just keep walking with Jesus. And one day, you'll be rewarded for all that he did through you. Did you catch that? You'll be rewarded for not what you've done, but what he's done through you. Because all you did was walk with him and let him have control, and you did what he said, and he made it work. He blessed it, and then you'll be rewarded for what he did. Now, we're going to close tonight. With verse 13, though, go back to James chapter 2, verse 13, because we really need to understand verse 13. It's pretty deep. He then ends up and says to this, says this, he says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to read it to you again. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The context here and the whole of Scripture is going to answer this question as to what this means. But let me paraphrase it for you. How we treat others, remember the full context of where we are in chapter 2. How we treat others will show whether we have received God's mercy or not. And if we're not merciful, but judgmental, God's mercy that triumphs over judgment will not be ours. I'm going to lay this out for you from Scripture. I'm going to read it to you again. How we treat others will show whether we have received God's mercy or not. And if we're not merciful, but judgmental, 
God's mercy that triumphs over judgment will not be ours. Go to Matthew 18. You're going to see this whole thought many places in Scripture. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. By the way, if you do the math today at that number, it's like a gazillion billion. All right. It's a lot more than you'll ever be able to make up in a 10 lifetimes. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and reported to their master all that had taken place, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is a very tough story. But we're going to let the whole of scripture let us build our theology and our understanding of this. Does the Bible teach that you can be saved and then if you act wrong, you'll lose it? No, the Bible's very clear that if you've been born again and sealed by the spirit of God, you're sealed for eternity. But here, if you remember, the Bible teaches, and you've heard me say this to you over and over, that the Bible says in 1 John 2, verse 2, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the fact that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, be reconciled to God. In other words, the message of the gospel is, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the whole world. He cried out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, God, God through Jesus has forgiven the whole world of their sins. That doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. You have to receive this forgiveness in order to be born again. It's available to all. It's been paid for for all. It's offered to all. Forgiveness is yours right now. If you're listening online and you've never been born again through faith in Jesus, God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to be payment for your sin. But you have to receive the gift. This man was offered forgiveness. But the fact that he went and wouldn't forgive his fellow servant who owed him a pittance compared to what he owed showed that he never received that forgiveness. And because he never received the forgiveness, even though it was offered, he was sent to torment. Go to Matthew 6. Look at verses 14 and 15. In the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There it is again. Go to Psalm 18. Look at verses 25 through 27. Psalm 18, verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Go to Proverbs 21, verse 13. Proverbs 21, verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Go to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 37 and 38. Luke 6. 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The passages we've all read are all saying the same thing. The way you treat others will show whether or not you've received God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And the one who doesn't show mercy will not receive any mercy from God. Oh, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a God of righteousness and truth. And he must punish sin. That's why the cross is necessary. If God just said, tell you what, I'm going to forgive it. He couldn't because his righteous requirements demanded payment for sin. But there's none of us that can make a payment for our sin. Our sin is too great. By the way, that's why hell is eternal, folks. That's why hell never ends, because there's no way we can pay for our sin. The hell's not eternal because God's really mean and he wants to punish you forever. No, hell is a place prepared for Satan and his followers. And when you choose to reject the only payment for your sin, which is Jesus, you've said, I want to pay for it myself. I'll come up with my own way to cover it. God says, knock yourself out. By the way, you'll be knocking yourself out for eternity because you'll never be able to pay for it. Hell is eternal because of the seriousness of our sin. But he then says this, but if you'll receive my forgiveness... What was the punishment of our sin was laid on Jesus and his righteousness is given to us. What an amazing transformation and transaction. And the Bible says the real evidence that we've received it is how we treat others. You want pure, you say you got religion? Pure religion is this, to show love toward those the world considers less. Be merciful, be patient. Be gentle, be humble, 
Don't be judgmental. By the way, is anybody finding this an easy lesson? I can do that. I got that. No. If you think I got this, you're already in trouble. That's why his mercies are new every morning. We need it every day. The moment you start thinking, you know, I'm getting pretty good at this. You've already taken a step back. We need him. Oh, and by the way, he's designed it that way. Have you ever thought about the fact that God gives us new life? He, he passes us from death to life. He puts his spirit within us. And now he's left us as the new creation in these old, stinking bodies of flesh. That we still wrestle with the flesh. Like Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he's writing this as a new creation. You ever wondered why God left us in these bodies of flesh, even though we've been born again? Let me help you out. One of the main reasons is so that we would rely on him. So we have got to stop saying, Lord, I'm going to live for you today. Let's close tonight with Psalm 51. Listen closely. Listen to what David writes. This is King David. You want to talk about humility. When he sinned with Bathsheba. Oh, by the way, was he a righteous man? Yes. It was actually considered a man after God's own heart. But he, with Bathsheba, did some of the worst sins we ever could imagine. If We listed them all. The adultery, the lying, the deceit. The murder, the drunkenness. I could go on and on. Look at what David writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, I've been a sinner since I was conceived. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Help, help, help. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth, and, and my, will, my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, I messed up. And that's who I am, and I'll be that way until I get out of this body, but I need you to wash me. I need you to renew a right spirit within me. Thank God we don't have to fear him removing his spirit as he did in the Old Testament. He won't do that to us in the New, but at the same time, he then, he says, after you do this work within me, 
that's my actions will follow. He doesn't say, God, I really blew it. I'm going to do this, 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 and this to make it up to you. God doesn't want that. God gives mercy and grace to the humble. And folks, we'll need to be reminded of this until we get out of these bodies. We need his grace and his mercy every single day. Let me say something real quick and then I'll get to you, Rick. I can tell you the honest truth. In the middle of preaching, there have been many times that I've been in the middle of a sermon and the Spirit of God will say something through me and my first fleshly thought is, well, that was pretty good. I hope they like that. I have to be careful at all times. We all have to be careful at all times. Now, does that mean if I've, in a certain instance, not shown mercy, God's not going to show me mercy? Does that mean in a certain instance I didn't forgive, God's not going to forgive? No, no, no. He's talking about the pattern of your life. If the pattern of your life is a non-merciful, judgmental person, uh, you better double check to make sure you got salvation. But as a whole, are you letting him live his life through you? Pursue the law of liberty. Go ahead, Rick. Exactly. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. I love you guys. No Bible study next week. We'll see you in two weeks.